0: This is the, waves. This, this is is the, the waves. waves. this is the Waves. This is the Waves. This is the Waves.
1: This is the
2: Waves. Welcome to the Waves, Slate's podcast about gender, feminism, and untangling the snake linguine. Every episode you get a new pair of women to talk about the thing we can't get off our minds. And today you've got me, Lily Loofborough, a staff writer for Slate,
0: and me, Emily Peck. I'm a longtime business journalist. I co-host Slate Money, and this is Key Slate Money's weekly Succession Recap podcast, and also the producers of the Waves. Um, they usually call me when it's time to talk about rich white ladies.
2: So here I am. <laughs> All right. So this week we're talking about the men versus the women of Succession. The much-loved HBO drama about a Rupert Murdoch-style patriarch whose children are vying for control of the family company, even though he's not at all ready to let go. Succession is kind of a broy show. Created by Jesse Armstrong, whose former work includes Peep Show, the best and funniest show about modern masculinity in TV history, in my opinion, Succession takes on masculine ego and narcissism with Brio. The dialogue is terrific, the satire is sharp, and the approach to abuses of power is unapologetic. So whenever one of the Roy boys fails to be anything short of a dick in their treatment of an adversary or confesses to a sentiment like love, their father, Logan Roy, calls them gay or women or both. And so this puts the one female sibling, Siobhan, nicknamed Shiv, in a weird position. She has to be able to roll with the boys, but she's not quite expected to operate like they do. And that's not an advantage. Shiv might be Logan's favorite, Pinky, he calls her, but her femaleness is always salient and strategic. She's never just being judged on her merits, so she's constantly on guard against becoming merely a token woman in a company culture that needs a makeover because of the rapes and murders that took place <laughs> under its male leadership. <laughs> Minor things. So, there's no way to win in this world, but this week we're talking about how the men are doing versus the women. And I'll be honest, I have been souring on Shiv for a while. This show is so wary of making her stereotypically feminine in any legible way that it's accidentally made her kind of a cipher. But Emily, why did you want to talk about this?
0: Well, this is a a topic I can't stop thinking about in the parlance of the waves because... I have to watch the show to do the Slate Recap
2: Podcast, first of all,
0: because I love the show. so um, And it's just a pleasure to kind of talk about it and luxuriate in the universe of succession, which is pretty removed from my reality or anyone's reality, I think, lately, um, except for maybe a few billionaires here and there. In 2019, I I wrote about the show... Because I admired the way Succession treats women, especially compared with other HBO shows where women, I mean, mean, one of the reasons HBO was founded as a television network was so they could show women's breasts, basically, and they've really held true to that over the years, I think, in their prestige drama, but Succession isn't like that. One of the show's writers, Lucy Preble, has said, like, we're just not interested in having people take their clothes off. I know that's a a pretty low bar. But I also think the show handles well kind of double bind that women in corporate America and these big companies are in. You know, they need to be tough, but they also need to be feminine. They have to struggle with men like Logan Roy, who absolutely does not respect women at all in the workplace. And I think it handles that well without being pedantic about it so yeah i'm excited to talk about this let's get into it
2: great well so this being the waves we're going to start off talking about the women so jerry is now ceo of VoiceTar royco and shiv is quote unquote president of domestic affairs marcia is making logan pay for his dalliance with raya does this mean the women of succession have finally won we'll discuss as soon as we're back Thank you so much for listening. If you're loving the show and want to hear more, subscribe to our feed. New episodes come out every Thursday morning. While you're there, check out our other episodes, too, like last week's where Allegra Frank and Shana Roth talked about horror movies. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. Shiv has finally been rewarded for all her vacillating back and forth with a position that sounds important. She's president now of domestic affairs, and Jerry is theoretically in charge. But it doesn't seem like they're actually much better off. Emily, can you catch us up on what's going on with the power struggles among the Roys? Yes, I think so. This season, there's kind
0: of a civil war among the Roys. There's patriarch Logan on the one side and his son, the second oldest but sort of most famous. Favored, I'd say, son Kendall, who at the end of season two basically started the war by calling his father TLDR a terrible person at a press conference and saying his father covered up crimes and so on. So this season, the two of them are on like opposing sides. Kendall has tried to get his siblings there's Siobhan, there is Roman, and uh, Connor. He's tried to get them lined up on his side. They have rejected him. And Basically, Siobhan is using the crisis as kind of this wedge to get into the company. Like you said, Lily, she's now the president of domestic affairs. This is very typical, I think, for women in the corporate worlds. There's a name for this. It's called the glass cliff. And um, the other thing to know is that Jerry, I, I would say Jerry and Siobhan both are on this glass cliff now because this is a company in crisis. And as a result, they've both ascended Um, But that's not necessarily a good thing.
2: In Shiv's situation, I want to talk about Shiv in particular. And and her situation at present, I think, is interesting because it feels like she beat her brothers. Her dad gave her a title. But this title is actually made up. um, And so there is a question as to how real it is. Because as we know, Logan the patriarch has a habit of kind of conferring power, but not really meaning it. Um, He's done that already with Jerry, who he's called a hazmat suit for himself and his family, um, in her capacity as CEO now, where she can take the hits that they should probably be receiving. But I'm very curious to see how much Shiv's title (laughs) is equally meaningless. But in any event, Shiv is very interesting, and I've said that I've soured her on a bit, by which I mean that I've stopped finding her character interesting or surprising, And I'm sad about that. (laughs) I think Succession is brilliant at writing men. And I totally agree with you, Emily, that it's been great at not showing tits and ass on the women (laughs) and that there are some really interesting women and that I think for a long time, I thought Shiv was among them, but it has felt to me more and more like there are hints of deep intelligence and vision and strategic cunning uh, that she has that keep not manifesting in practice. The guys are kind of different. I think Shiv has been psychologically portrayed as very put together, but the men are vulnerable. (laughs) So whether they're weaselly or narcissistic or self-aggrandizing or simply scary, they have layers. And more importantly, the way those layers interact is psychologically pretty well spelled out. Like we've spent a lot of time alone with Kendall. We know how he works and how he's suffered. Um, He and Roman are, they're vulnerable, right? In ways that make them legible and human. And it also makes them seem weak to their dad. But I I can't say the same for Shiv. Um, Snook does like an amazing job playing her. You know, her smirks and her eye rolls and her sarcasm do so much to like, to really enrich a character who otherwise I think just isn't actually as defined or well-written as her brothers. And it's possible, I think, that (laughs) since Shiv is a woman and they're trying to protect her from feminine stereotypes, Shiv's vulnerabilities aren't written in in ways that make her psychologically legible. Like I think Kendall and Roman are wounded, they're wounded by abuse and they're aching for their dad's approval. So, you know, they're trying in ways that are kind of coded, masculine and desperate. They're eccentric and weird. And they throw out these bizarre visions and strategies for the company that can sometimes be compelling even when they're really bizarre. But Shiv is very, um, power suit (laughs) in her present iteration to me. Like I was more interested in her when she was kind of a bohemian political consultant who was rebelling against her dad. But now she seems to me like hopelessly focus grouped. There just doesn't seem to be anything driving her except for simple lust for power. And she's not even playing that game that well. Like she knows that her dad hates constraints and rejects limits but it feels to me that in practice that all she does is point out what the limits and constraints are and how to operate within them in a very politically savvy way, but not in a visionary CEO type way. Like her memo for the company seems to have struck everyone as like, you know, kind of hilariously generic and every one of her instincts seems conformist to me. And so so in this episode, even when her speech got interrupted, thank God, <laughs> It seemed to me like it was just pure corporate boilerplate. So I was almost grateful to Kendall, almost, almost grateful to Kendall for sabotaging her. But I want to hear what you think about that and about her revenge on Kendall. Okay, well, there's a lot
0: to unpack with what you just said, Lily. And again, it's very it's very convincing what you're saying, because there is a difference between the way the siblings are portrayed. And it does seem to break along gendered lines. And Shiv does seem to be. I guess you could say she is portrayed as less vulnerable, but I think throughout this series there have been these like moments where she has cracked that have been interesting. I think in this this week's episode spitting in Kendall's notebook after he sabotages her speech it was a moment of I mean it's a lashing out moment and it's very, it's very roy and very aggressive and like wounded animal hurting and lashing out kind of moment, but it, it's still a moment of vulnerability. And we've seen that before with her, with um with her husband, you know, she couldn't decide whether or not to fire Tom at the end of season two when they needed a, like a head on a plate or whatever the term was, Um, you know, a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice. She asked her father, please, you know, please don't, not Tom, just don't do this. And that was a moment of vulnerability for her. So
1: What do you think? Uh, it's the sort of tough choice People need to be able to make People Who would be Very senior people
2: I can't choose that.
1: No No. <sighs> just not
2: uh just not down. Please. For me. The
0: other thing I would say about her is that she comes across as more competent than her brothers in terms of and you see this as this season 3 I've had the privilege of like watching a little bit ahead and um she is I think more competent at getting things done than Kendall and Roman who are just kind of like I think kind of bumbling a lot of the times and just they don't understand how they seem to the rest of the world that's it i don't think kendall you know <laughs> who said Fuck the patriarchy in le- in last in this week's episode. I don't think he understands how he comes off. Shiv understands like that is her superpower. She gets a lot of it, not all the time. There's blind spots. These are billionaires. They don't really understand what re- real people think, but like she understands self presentation and she understands appearances. I mean. She was like a a comms person in politics. So she understands messaging and all of that. So I don't think she's just a cipher. And I don't think her power hunger is any different from Kendall's or Roman's. Like They're all hungry for power pretty much in the same kind of of way. And it's an empty hunger. It's really just like um, a stand-in for wanting their dad to love them, I think.
2: I mean, I think what I would, that maybe I should try to refine my point, which is not that she is differently power hungry, but that there are, there are human cores, I think, to Kendall, certainly, and to a lesser extent to Roman that, where I really get their psychology, right? Like, I really understand Roman's, whatever his weird sort of sexual hang ups are, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that create this weird psycho drama with Jerry. It's really interesting and compelling. And um, and I have a bead on it somehow. And, and, and with Kendall, his struggles with addiction and, you know, his obvious push and pull with his dad, <laughs> I have a handle, I guess, on what makes them tick. And I feel like what happens with Shiv is that she does get, as you say, you're right, there are moments of vulnerability. And I want to talk a little bit about the, the one where she does seem to choose Tom over her chance at being CEO when she asks Logan to protect Tom. I thought that was a fascinating moment and I think what frustrates me <laughs> is that there doesn't seem to be a follow through to it. So like with Kendall, his psychological journey is very precisely calibrated and step by step you can kind of see to where he's getting. And I think Shiv is kind of constitutionally opaque in the writing. Getting to that that, that moment where she chooses Tom at the end of season two It seemed to me fascinating for her character. I was like, yes, this is the arc I've been waiting for. Like, this seems to me like an act of real self-sacrifice. And it's a decisive moment of making a hard choice proactively, right? Rather than just reacting to what others were doing. I thought she was knowingly destroying her chances of becoming CEO by begging him to spare Tom. It's true that Logan might honor that, but he would also see her as weak and unfit to lead by his own sort of fucked up criteria. But so it seemed to me like she was choosing love over ambition in a marriage that she had not previously prioritized. So that seemed huge to me. Like I thought it was like the biggest development in her arc. But it feels to me like season three, which begins literally minutes after this happened, kind of forgot that it even happened. So I guess this is what I mean about the writing for her feeling a little bit wobbly and insufficient. I want to see Shiv's journey desperately, but it keeps on feeling kind of governed by external signifiers of power plays rather than like by inner motions that I feel like the guys get more. However, I'm really curious to see her working with Jerry, the woman who's quote unquote actually in charge. Like, will they get along? Will they clash? I don't know. What do you think? This season, it feels like
0: when Jerry was coming up, because we know she's been at Waystar Royco for 35 years, and this is a company that's all, it's all men. There's a great, there's a great scene in an early season where Everyone's watching, I think everyone's watching like a sexual harassment training video or something. And it's just all men watching it. And the video says, like, we believe in diversity, blah, blah, blah. And it's like all just men, white men in suits coming out. So, like, Jerry came up in that atmosphere where she's the only woman, or at least that's what it seems like. It's never explicitly spelled out, but I feel we can assume this. And now Shiv is kind of, by coming in, as they like to call it, are you going to come in? Are you going to work for the company? You know, she is challenging jerry possibly who's used to being kind of a token which i think is kind of setting them up to be a bit at odds with each other and i think we'll see that going forward in the show i think they will they will definitely clash because it there's the um competing to be the one woman thing on top of the the other like theme of succession, which is the annoying kids trying to pretend they know how to do business stuff versus like the old hands like Jerry, like Frank, like Carl, who actually have done work in the company for a long time and know what they're doing and they're not just there because because of nepotism. I guess the other thing, if we're going to talk about the women of of succession besides Shiv, the other thing that I've been a little bit let down by in season three so far is that we haven't had those like very compelling side characters that we had a last time like we had cherry jones and holly hunter playing these like very interested interesting and complicated older women which i really really loved and this season well i mean we have to talk about naomi pierce played by annabelle dexter jones is just she's kendall's girlfriend she's blonde I don't know what else to say about this character. It's just there's nothing much going on there, right?
2: I know. And, you know, it's weird because Naomi seemed interesting last season to right. me. Like, she had a lot of pain. And it seemed like their connection was robust and, like, substantive in a way that I was really sold on. I was like, yes, these two children of ultra-rich ultra, ultra rich tyrants would, of course, right, have a lot of <laughs> a lot to bond with and through. Like, I was... Interested in that relationship. And this season, I don't know, she feels kind of like frivolous and petty and enabling. Yeah,
0: I feel like what's a psychological term? It's like trauma bonding or something, like his trauma and her trauma. It's like a plug in a, you know, they plug in well together, their wounds and such. And uh, I thought that was going to be really interesting, just like you said. And instead, it's just like she's just kind of in the background of these scenes where Kendall is just making a fool out of himself and she doesn't seem to care. It's weird. Where are the writers on her? It's very weird.
2: Yeah. Yeah. The last woman I really want to talk about is like, I was so happy to see Marsha back. I just, I love Marsha. Every line of hers just crackles and it, it, it's so it's so pleasurable to see Logan have to actually pay, I guess, literally for something he's done. But her ruthlessness is something I really enjoy. And it's coming from a totally different place and a totally different angle than everyone else on the show. Like, I, I don't hope that, that anybody wins. But if Marsha ends up using the intel that she has on how Logan covered up the drowned waiter to bring them all down, I will cheer.
0: Yeah, here, here, More Marsha and whatever she can do to take Logan down a peg is Much appreciated.
2: Uh, We're going to take a break here, but if you're enjoying The Waves, we would love it if you would like and subscribe to The Waves wherever you get your podcasts.
0: And if you want to hear more from Lily and myself on another topic, check out our Waves Plus segment, Is This Feminist?, where today we debate whether Elaine Bennis from Seinfeld, played by Julia Louis-Dreyfus, is
2: feminist. And The Waves needs your help. We're closing out 2021 with two very special Waves reunion episodes. We're bringing back original hosting panels June Thomas, Noreen Malone, and Hannah Rosen ahead of Christmas, and Marsha Chatlin, Nicole Perkins, and Christina Cotarucci for New Year's. And we'd love to hear from you. Send them your questions and thoughts for discussion at the waves at slate.com.
0: Can I just say I'm so excited for June, Noreen, and Hannah to come back? Because I have been listening to this podcast since like, I think 2009 or something. I don't know. I'm so excited. I feel like they'll. I'll be hearing from old friends even though I don't know them.
2: Okay, so what about the men? Tom has offered to go to jail for Logan. Kendall has been denounced in public by his sister and given up on his resolution to be quote unquote part of the conversation. And he's hiding in an electrical closet. Logan's being raided by the FBI. Is Roman in the best position right now? I don't think there is a single man in a good position in
0: this show, except for I guess Logan, though, as you said, the FBI just raided his office except for Logan, who retains all power for himself and has done throughout this show. He has elided any opportunity to have a successor. I'd love for you to talk more about the show's conception of masculinity. I sort of wonder about Logan, masculinity, and the actual, what I think is the driving force of all the drama in this show, which, bottom line, is just about a father who has deep emotional wounds, is failing to actually actively love his children and be there emotionally for them and sort of manipulating their need for his love. And I feel like that is kind of all tied up in notions of what it means to be a man and masculinity. And it's just something I I think about kind of a lot um, when I'm looking at the news, especially after all those years um, living in Trump's America of how expectations for masculinity damage men and those men become really powerful and like damage all of us
2: (laughs) yeah i mean i thought one of the saddest moments in this week's episode was when roman it becomes clear that roman has literally no pleasant memories with his father and has to borrow one from an excursion that he took with his brother connor like that's just devastating
1: and then, uh, you know, I, th- I think that you know that there's this idea that everyone, uh, everyone thought it'd be really kind of fun if, after everything, we might uh, open up the door and some family stuff for a little bit. No, I know, I know, and we won't dwell on it. So uh, we'll just keep it loose and uh, be fun to freewheel it. Hmm? Tell me precisely every single word they're going to ask me. Well, I couldn't disclose specific questions because of our policies at ATN Business, and that would be ethically, uh, you know. But it uh, might be something like... Logan seems like a business-oriented guy. What's something special that you and your dad enjoy doing together? No. Next question. Okay, sure. What was the time that your dad came to your aid when you really needed him? Mm, no, I'm not doing that one. Right. Um, <clears throat> what is your most cherished father-son memory? So far, these are bad. Well, how about uh, how about you lead? Is there some sort of childhood uh, story that you'd like to tell? I got a memory in the old bankiola. Uh, so oh. fly
2: fishing in Montana, if
1: sure that interests you. Thank you, Mr. Roy.
2: Logan's vision of power is so kind of pathologically rooted in domination, with, with the boar on the floor. Yes. <laughs> crap, that everyone around him has to be submissive and cringing, including, like, Carl and Frank, his closest advisors. So, like, of course, right, it unfits his sons for power based on his own idea of how power works. Like, I mean, I feel like a thousand essays were written about Logan's expression at the end of season two when Kendall betrayed him. There was, like, that hint of a smile that Brian Cox had on his face. It, it seemed to imply that he was pleased, right, to see his son finally as the killer he wanted, even if it came at his own expense. But I wondered then and I wonder now whether Logan is even enough of a parent, <laughs> like whether he's constitutionally capable of caring more about his son's personal development and to the right kind of monster <laughs> than he is about his own control of the company.
0: Yeah. We had an interesting conversation about this, I think, on next week's episode. Of Slate Money Succession, we had this guy Michael Mechanic on. He's like a senior editor at Mother Jones, and he wrote a whole book about rich people. We were asking him, like, are the Roys a typical (laughs) rich family? And one point he made was rich people like Logan Roy are too busy to be loving parents. He told a story about a woman um, raised a millionaire, and he said that she had only had dinner with her father as a child five times that she could remember five times like whoa and then you kind of look at the way kendall is not interacting with his children so far in 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 season three and barely in the show billionaires who are pursuing power don't have time to be anything but sociopathic parents um and that can cause a lot of of problems that we're seeing in the show
2: that's fascinating. I mean, I think, like, the opening credits actually do such a nice job of, like, basically creating kind of visual poem around that alienation and, like, the formality of the dad's occasional visual presence with those kids. I suppose, right, that also explains the attention-seeking. <laughs> right? Yeah, And, yeah. you know, the extent to which the power plays aren't just power plays, but are just, like, desperate attempts to get attention from the dad in any way possible that's really interesting
0: there's that viral have you seen the viral video where the guy he sings over the succession theme song and it's like something about a kiss from daddy we're going
2: to argue, and the new ever's best is going to win that kiss going kiss
0: it's actually quite accurate. They're all just trying to get a kiss from daddy.
2: (laughs) And I mean, you know, and and I I will say that that's what I think sets Succession apart from like maybe some comparable shows. A lot of its masculinity is actually quite soft. Right. I mean, it's about masculine neediness and insecurity and sadness. And returning to your point about Succession not having tits and ass. Right. And like not writing women that way. There is a whole universe of shows about corporate America that are kind of in the vein of the American psycho bro, right? And I would expect a show like this to be heavily populated by that kind of character. And Stewie, frankly, is the only one who even comes close, besides Logan, that is to say, like to that version of um, predatory sociopathy. And I, I find that really interesting. Like, I'm, I am interested in the range of masculinities that are on display in succession. And I think it's a very rich brew, <laughs> um, not just Carl, not just Frank, but, um, I, I'm even really fascinated by, you know, Fisher Stevens is Hugo, who's a relatively new character. And he seems just a little bit different from Logan's other male satellites. Like he seems better somehow at managing Logan then Carl or Frank, he's been grooming his way into Logan's good graces over the last few episodes with real speed and success. And it might be like just very low key, one of the more interesting arcs to watch. Like, why is he rising so quickly? You know, why has he gotten so close to the center without pissing Logan off the way that Frank seems to continually do by barely saying anything at all? <laughs> you know?
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, he hasn't yet betrayed Logan as, as I guess Frank did in a previous season. And he doesn't. He doesn't pretend to be better than Logan. I think one of the tensions with Logan and Frank is that Frank fancies himself a bit of a literary fellow. You know, he quotes Shakespeare here and there. And I don't think Logan, he feels a little, um, puts him on the defensive. He's that's he's not an academic or anything like that. Uh, so I think there's that tension there. And Hugo is just more ingratiating and sort of like snake-like and that kind of gets him in, he kind of just slithering in to, I don't know, making his his moves. I'm not sure what the deal is. He's more willing to be subservient, too, in a way that, and, ser- and just literally, like, serve Logan, like, shuttle them around in planes and, you know, hotel rooms in a way that Frank and Carl can't because they're, like, executives, I guess, or, you know, like, C-level executives, they're not going to, like, book a room in a hotel or anything like that, but, like, Hugo can do that kind of stuff he's not a threat. That is
2: so interesting. Right. He's not a threat. I hadn't. Yeah. No, you're so right about, you're so right about Frank. I hadn't thought about that because it's true that even that you're right, Frank betrays Logan. So one could forgive Logan for, I guess, being suspicious of him. You're mashed potatoes. (laughs) potatoes. (laughs) But, but I mean, you know, the pilot, has Logan firing Frank for no reason, just because he wants to get Roman to sign, you know, I mean, the hostility goes back. (laughs)
0: Yes, (laughs) absolutely.
2: And that makes sense, right? You're saying that he's elitist.
0: I was going to say, we can't let this episode go and this discussion of masculinity pass without digging in on Tom and Greg, right, Lily?
2: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, so many of the most quoted lines from Succession, I feel like, come from Tom and Greg scenes, right? They, they they, they, really have become, I don't know, I think they started off as like a funny kind of comic relief Rosencrantz and Guildenstern kind of function in Succession. They were kind of two marginal clowns trying to worm their way into the center, and Tom was trying to exercise what little power he has over somebody. And so Greg ends up being the hapless recipient of both his like trading wheel monster efforts at domination and also the recipient of all of his genuine love. (laughs) So like, it's this really strange amalgam of abuse and friendship and mutual exploitation. But in a show that, that is ostensibly right about the core family, by which I really mean Logan and his three children, not including Connor, because Connor is so rarely a player. It's kind of interesting that I think that Tom and Greg's friendship, which maybe exists because they're not literally part of that family in the same way, is starting to feel like it's emotional center to me. I think that feels right. I think there is a genuine bond
0: between those characters. I think... I mean, you can't make a Tomlet without breaking some Greg's, first of all. But I think (laughs) for Tom, he saw like both a rival and an ally in Greg, because they're both kind of, like you said, in the same position of like trying to break into the family. You know, Tom's trying to do it by being married to Siobhan and Greg's doing it because he's cousin Greg and like trying to exploit whatever he can to get a bunch of money for himself or get a job or it's unclear to me exactly what Greg really wants. Um, Cause he's not trying to get a kiss from daddy really, you know? Um, But Tom kind of is, Uh, but it, it seems like they both, I think emotionally, I think it's coming from Tom to Greg a lot more than the opposite direction. I think he's sort of, I don't know. He, f- he feels something for him because there are these moments with Tom where it's like, he does seem like a vulnerable and almost quite normal person. He seemed like a genuine person with genuine sort of like emotional hopes and dreams in a way that the others don't. And he attaches some emotion for whatever reason to Greg. Maybe he sees himself in Greg or something.
2: I mean, it feels like he displaces a lot of that that sort of longing for some kind of traditional love relationship with Siobhan onto, <laughs> onto Greg. So when yeah. Greg tells him he wants to switch to Parks... Like shooters. Tom's, remember he starts hurling I just don't water it. bottles? Like
1: I I just don't really love it and I want to go explore. Uh-huh. And then I and I can come back. You know? It, it could be like like a business open relationship. This is not a good feeling, Greg, that you're making me have, you know? Can you stop crunching? Sure, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm feeling... What? I just, I feel a little bit, you know? I know, I know, it's just an idea. Fuck. Fuck. Yeah. Tom, hey, hey, Tom, Tom, we're good. We're good. We're good? We're good! Cause It doesn't feel fucking good, Greg! Let's just, can we... Ah! I will not let you do this to me! I will not let
2: go of what is mine! The strength of Tom's feeling for Greg. <laughs> the, the magnitude of the sense of betrayal he feels when, you know, Greg is is trying to sort of go his own ways is, is so disproportionate. Tom appears to be a somewhat normal human who is trying to ape what the Roy family does. So like, yes, he tried to use people as furniture because he thinks that's a thing that the Roys do. I, you know, his efforts to <laughs> his efforts to mimic the version of coldness and ruthlessness that the Roys, I think, are brought up to is are, are, are comical, but also... He just really craves genuine connection. And and Greg seems to be the only place where he's able to produce it.
0: Yes. And it just occurred to me while you were talking that when he's throwing those water bottles at Greg, he's really throwing the water bottles at Siobhan. (laughs) Because Siobhan has just told him she wants an open relationship, you know, on their wedding night. Exactly when you should time such a conversation. And he's mad about it. But he acts pretty cool because he's in a weird power dynamic with his wife, right, where, like, she's not just his wife, she's, like, his entree into an executive role at this big company and stuff, so he can't, he can't, like, get that angry at her, but he can get that angry at, at Greg.
2: Kiss. On which going to argue? And the new best is going to win kiss from daddy.
1: Daddy.
0: Before we head out, we want to give some recommendations. Lily, what are you loving right now?
2: Well, I have been into fountain pens for a while. I've been kind of going deeper into fountain pen land, which is, boy, is it a rich subculture, let me tell you. <laughs> wait,
0: Lily, wait, 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 wait. First of all, Can you explain to me, a rube who just steals pens from people and doesn't buy them even, what exactly is a fountain pen? Is that an old-timey, is there a quill involved? Can you just just tell me what it is?
2: (laughs) There's not a quill, but there is a nib. And there's some kind of ink-containing mechanism, right? So whether it's a converter that you fill up with ink or an ink cartridge that you plug into the pen so that you can use it not quill era, but a little (laughs) bit after graphic of a pen, it will have that pretty little nib that looks kind of like an arrow. And um, does it make a scraping
0: sound on the, on the paper? Oh, I'm so happy you asked me that
2: because that's where my recommendation is going. Uh, No, (laughs) a good one should not scratch. A fountain pen should be a smooth writing experience and a lot more ink comes out at a time. One starts to acquire appreciations for different kinds of nibs, right? Do you want a hard one or a soft one, a firm or whatever? What I have recently discovered is that gold tipped gold nibs are incredible to write with because gold is so soft. So it's, it's just a beautiful material to write with. And the blackness of the line when you put it down is just like unsurpassed. Such a pleasure, the, p- the problem with that is the gold nibs are really expensive. <laughs> I would imagine <laughs> so, so. So if you don't want to spend a fortune on them, it turns out that there is a workaround. And the workaround is vintage pens. There is this whole market of like pens from the 1950s onward that were incredible. Like Parkers and Pilots from that era are so much better <laughs> than the equivalents today. So you can get these beautiful, gold pens with incredible gold nibs for pretty cheap. And so that is my recommendation. It has changed my life and I write with this pen all the time and all of my other ones now feel inferior in comparison to it. How about you? I wanted to
0: recommend another podcast. It's called, and it's specifically, I'm recommending it for the Succession fans that are listening today. It's called The Just Enough Family. Um, And it is about... A very rich family, uh, the Steinbergs, who became super fabulously, incredibly billionaire level, crazy wealthy in the 70s and 80s and 90s, and then basically lost it all. One of the daughters is Liz Lang, who founded um, a line of maternity clothes that are considered like very revolutionary. I mean, it's just, uh, it's so good. It's two brothers. One is like a genius who goes to Wharton and becomes a a corporate raider in the 80s, all kinds of hijinks ensue, just exactly kind of what you would expect from, if you've watched Succession, you will inhale this podcast. It's hosted by Ariel Levy, um, who's a writer for The New Yorker and is friends with Liz Lang, who she was able to interview for this podcast. So it's like a very underproduced podcast the interviews are like very raw and there's like at one point Liz Lang says something like I never spoke to my father about this like we never just talked about it or got it all out and Ariel Levy says that's so goyesha and it just like (laughs) it's such a great moment in interviewing and um, I hope that makes you want to listen because it's really good. Wow that sounds amazing and it could not be more fitting
2: for our discussion today. (laughs) Yeah I devoured it. All right, well, that's our show this week. The Waves is produced by Shana Roth.
0: Susan Matthews is our editorial director with June Thomas, providing oversight and moral support.
2: If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. And please consider supporting the show by joining Slate Plus. Members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast and bonus content of shows like this one. It's only $1 for the first month. To learn more, go to slate.com thewavesplus. We'd also love to hear from you. Email us at thewaves@slate.com. The Waves will be back next week. Different hosts, different topic, same time and place.